Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 440 of the podcast. It's February 16th, 2022. My guest today is Bella Engelbach. She is, among other things, the author of the book, Creatively Lean, How to Get Out of Your Own Way and Drive Innovation Throughout Your Organization. So you'll learn more about Bella in a minute. But for links uh, to her website, to her book, to her podcast, and more, look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 440. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Again, our guest today is Bella Engelbach. Let me tell you a little bit about Bella. She is the lead consultant at her firm. She calls Lean for Humans. The website is leanforhumans.com. She is host of a podcast called The Edges of Lean. And it says on your LinkedIn profile, Bella, that you are creating better organizations where the music of the human spirit sings. Yes. That's a beautiful phrase. Welcome to the podcast. Thank first you. off, I should do that. Thanks where, so much. Where where does that phrase come from? That that's that's lovely. So that phrase actually came from a workshop that I did with Karen Ross, who's a friend of yours and mine, and we uh, were doing a workshop on finding your own voice and uh, and purpose. And I won't give you all the details of what happened, but the um, the tagline came out of there. What I was really trying to express was you can work in an organization where you just feel dead inside. And I think we've all had the opportunity, or the, you know, I don't know if you call it an opportunity, to do that. And then you can work in an organization where you can feel that you are very much appreciated and affirmed, and especially that your ideas um can be moved forward and that your ideas can move the organization forward. So, um, you know, that's, that has provides a kind of fulfillment that I think a lot of people don't have. So when I was thinking about, you know, what is it that I really want to do with Lean for Humans? It, it is about that. It's about helping uh, people create the kind of organization that feels safe enough and open enough to innovation that people do feel that the human spirit can actually get out there and belt out a little song. Now, do you, I'm not putting it on the spot. Do you sing or that's just a, I do. a phrase that resonated with you? I actually, I am a, you know, an, an amateur singer. I've, I've sung in a chorus, a choir for a long, long time. Um, I've taken voice lessons off and on. I'm currently taking voice lessons because as one gets a little older, you know, the voice changes. So it's good to have some lessons and kind of buff things up. And my granddaughter, who I could talk about for hours, and I'm sure the listeners don't want to hear about, is uh, almost 10. And she's just started taking voice lessons. So having a a lot of fun uh, seeing her start to learn things that I wish I had learned many years ago. But there's, a, a, it seems, a parallel that we could draw uh, to Lean and to Toyota Kata or whatever phrases you're using about this need for ongoing learning or fine-tuning or, or relearning things that we thought we already knew how to do, right? Yeah, I love that. You know, I love the um, the little things they had that, that 
you get when you go to something like the Kodakon. I am a little bit of a Kodak aficionado. Um, and so one of my favorites is is this little uh, thing they hand out that says, don't be so sure. And one of the things that I have learned in taking voice lessons again now at my age is a lot of the things I thought were the right things to do for good vocal production, uh, they don't. Either they never worked or they don't work for me now. So, you know, having to relearn, to learn new technique, uh, learn technique perhaps that's, that's come along um, is, uh, is really interesting. And I passed that stuff on to my granddaughter. I said, you know, I just had this conversation with my teacher and she said, do it this way. My granddaughter looks at me, you know, she just sings and, and she looks yeah. at me like I'm a little bit silly. So is it a matter of what works for each voice? Like I I do not sing. I've never had any training. I haven't even ever tried. Well, I'm not qualified to answer that question, but I know certainly there are things in terms of the mechanics of the voice that probably apply to everybody. And then for individuals, everybody's anatomy is a little bit different. Um, and the quality of the machinery um, and how well it's been maintained is a little bit different. So there might be different things that you have to do. So one of the things that I've been really learning about is the concept of vocal placement. That is, where is your voice actually um, sort of coming from in your mouth? And uh, that is probably going to feel different for different people because their anatomy is different. And then I would, you know, I think for people who sing different types of singing, there are, there are certainly things that are going to be different. I sing um, mostly classical. I'm learning to sing jazz, which is a wonderful oh, new experience yeah. for me. Yeah. It's hard. Well, I mean, that's um, anything worthwhile has its uh, difficulties. And I, and I feel like, and I don't mean to be encroaching on your space of the edges of lean, but I feel like even in talking about singing here, we're on the edges of the edges of lean, because when it comes to things like learning and practice and like, you know, having a teacher who guides you and, and there's this balance of like learning from an expert or a sensei or whatever word you might use and going and trying something and mm -hmm. seeing what works for you. So maybe, you know, to bring it back more directly to, to the core of lean, like, you know, when, when, when you're coaching people, how, how do you find that balance between learning from somebody like yourself versus going and experimenting and trying things? They know that's a really good question. And as a, as a coach, I, you know, I feel that I am sometimes a bad coach and I tell my clients, um, you know, I say, you're going to get some bad coaching right now because the bad coaching is when I tell people things, right? The bad coaching is when I say, in my experience, this happened to me and this is how I handled it. And, and this is what happened when that happened to me. That's bad coaching, right? That's my experience. It's about a different time, a different place. And maybe there's a principle that my client can glean from that and maybe there's not. Um, the good coaching is when we just, you know, we, we I ask them, what do you think? What do you think is happening here? You know, what is the current situation? What do you see going on right now? What do you think you know about that? And particularly because we 
coaching often seems to come back to how do I and my environment relate to other people. Now, you know, and I'm not a therapist. I can't do the therapy stuff. But a lot of it seems to come down to assumptions where people are making assumptions about other people and their intentions. And so, you know, having to ask the question, well, um, how do you know that? How do you know that that's what that person is really thinking? That's what's really driving them. And then what experiment could we do or could you do to test out what you think is actually happening? And, and that's where I see people making a tremendous amount of learning, you know, when, the, when they do something. And we always, we, do, we never try to do an experiment that is going to hurt another person, but will help us understand more about that other person. Because when it comes down to um, people's happiness and success, so much of it does have to do with how they relate to other people. Um, you yeah. know, so lean for humans. It's, it is. <laughs> And and you know and I and, and I think you know I have to be careful about saying you know we do experiments on people because we don't uh, do experiments on people. Right. That's not what I mean. It's right. you know, if you go in with this intention and you say things something in this way or show them this thing, what do you think is going to happen? And then what actually happened? Well, what did you learn from that? You know, which is very much a Toyota kind of type of approach. Right. And, you know, that we, we, we ended up on this topic. I was going to mention something that was on your website. It was um, kind of feedback, if not endorsement. Well, it was an endorsement. I'll call it that from one of your clients where it says, uh, in his words, Bella does not tell you what to do. She leads you down the path where you can discover it yourself. Now, there's kind of a meta question around that. Did somebody at some point tell you to coach that way? Or did you discover that yourself, that it's more effective to lead, help lead others down a path? Well, I worked inside a company, you know, a big company for many, many years. And so I did a lot of mentoring and I was a manager of people. And so I thought I was coaching. I didn't really know what coaching was. So that was definitely something that I learned in coaching. But it's very much framed by what I also have been practicing in terms of lean thinking. And so... A book that for me was just kind of earth-shaking was is um, Managing to Learn by John Shook, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that's a book about how you fill out an A3. But as a manager, mm -hmm. right, someone's managing people, what was really important to me was it's this conversation between the learner um, and the manager, and I was very interested in what was happening in the manager's head and how the manager had to keep pulling back from telling. And uh, now, when I was working in the big company, there was a lot in that environment that was pushing me towards, you know, you got to tell your people what to do, tell them what to do. And so, um, you know, I was, was, I was always trying. And I think that my employees, if you talk to one of my former employees, they would say this, the same thing that Bella, whenever it was possible, let you solve the problem yourself and uh, treated it as a learning experience. It was not always possible to do that in that particular corporate environment. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's what, there's expectations of the leaders you report to. There's the prevailing culture that you're a part of. There's, 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 maybe only so much you can do um, as an individual. If, if, if you're wanting to lead by asking questions or like, you know, I think there's the flip side. I'm curious to hear your thoughts or experiences around this. There's, there's definitely the habit you mentioned of 
telling people what to do. People, I think, also get conditioned to be told what to do. And they may, you know, on some level, they may not like that, but it's it's the norm. It's it's what's comfortable. It it sort of takes risk away from me if I'm doing well. Bella told me to do it. I didn't think it was a good idea, but I did it anyway. <laughs> how do you yeah, help? That's... How do you get out of that? Uh, well, I think the thing is, if you are a manager, and um, you know, one thing that I would I would like to say about my coaching practices is that's that's kind of my favorite place to coach. I know a lot of people coach CEOs and, and C-suite people. That's great. Um, I love to coach people in the middle layer because I really feel that they have the hardest time, right? Because it's what you were talked about, Mark. You kind of get crunched. You've got people from the top handing down directives, and then you've got people at the bottom who, uh, you know, who, who are trying to do their job, and you've got to manage with all of that, and, and it can feel like a really, really tough place. So the thing then is to figure out, well, how do you create experiments that allow people to start to build confidence, right? So just do some little thing, see what happens, um, and then and then you could move on to a bigger thing. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, when you have actually like raising children, you know, you know, first the child's allowed to walk to into the driveway and they gain some confidence going to the end of the driveway. Well, now they can walk down to the corner. But you gotta you gotta walk to the end of the driveway first, come back to the house, make sure you know where the front door is. So I think it's about really trying to to focus on doing small experiments, small changes. Um, and and then also for the manager, that's very hard, right? So for the manager, they have to start to feel comfortable letting people do that. Because if they have been raised in this very hierarchical way of working, then it's going to be very hard for them to let go. Um, and it will go against their internal expectations. And they have to examine their internal expectations. And there's, uh, there's, there can be like really big ahas mm. there. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's tough in my experience when leaders are trying to empower their people or the leaders are trying to get comfortable with the idea that they're going to empower their people. And they'll say, well, what, what, what if they have bad ideas? Well, there's, I think there's this balance of, as you've alluded to it, if somebody suggests something that only the manager realizes is unsafe or against regulations or like there, there is, I, I think a time and a place for a leader to step in and call timeout and not just say, don't do that, but do some coaching and some education yeah. about why that's a problem. But, you know, I found like it, it's really rare instances where one of those criteria might be met. If you have a conversation with a leader of like, well, if they try such and such and it doesn't work, what's the worst that could happen? Right. Fair thing right. to ask. Well, yeah, that I mean, that is that is a really good question. You know, so so what's the worst that could happen? What would be what's interesting? I think I wonder if you ever get this answer is you know, something really dire where the person that you're coaching, the manager, is now going to catastrophize the situation, 
right? Sure. So, so then you have to have a further conversation about how likely is that, you know? So it's a risk analysis. <laughs> right. It's an you know? FMEA analysis. Exactly. Right, it's right, an right. FMEA. It's it's like how likely is this actually to happen? It could be right. catastrophic, but how likely is that right. to happen? Yeah. But I. The thing that I just and I wrote about this um, this in my book. The thing that we really have to be aware of is that we can react about things, particularly when we're in a in that position of feeling like we have to hold on. We're crushed in between, you know, the rock and the hard place, the bosses and 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 the employees who need who need help. Um, we can react without understanding where our reactions coming from. So right, so. Because of some internalized bad memory, um, and then it's, if it's me, then I'm coming up with excuses as to why that happened, and and you know really have to take time, sit back and reflect. Okay, why did I react in that way? Yeah. Well, and I could see where, and you know, I guess I was saying you know it's between you know just you know between us when I say what's the worst that could happen, that's not really the right way. To ask it, so I appreciate your your gentle pushback on that because that does sound a little uh, combative. But to but to get to the core of like you know well what what is the risk here? Um, yeah, that conversation um, could be had. And and I do apologize for not mentioning your book. Uh, Bella's book um, came out in 2019. Uh, Creatively lean: How to get out of your own way and drive innovation through your organization. So I apologize for my sloppiness in the uh, oh, no problem. introductions here today, but good job in mentioning the book. An author has to mention their book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would have got the podcast in, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back and talk about that um, a little bit more. Um, so I want to you know, come back to a question. Uh, I tried to mix things up a little bit today. I often ask this as the very first question about, you know, a, a lean origin story or whatever oh, phrase man. or lingo, you know, was being used in, in that origin. You know, Bella, what, what, what's your lean origin story? How did you get involved in process improvement or whatever we're calling it? So how much time does it, do you have? I mean, how long are is we, this podcast? Oh, we've got, we do pretty long podcasts. We have time. <laughs> All right. All right. So I started my career, um, in a research lab, um, I started in academia, and then I went to um, a pharmaceutical company research lab. And um, from there, I, I ended up moving to um, medical writing. So, so if, in a pharmaceutical company, um, medical one of the things that medical writing done is does is help to write the applications that go into the health authorities, like the FDA. So, I'd be working in a lab that had been doing discovery. Um, you know, which is which is was coming up with new drugs and testing new drugs in animals, and then all of a sudden I was propelled to the other end of the process. And I have to tell you, I was not a process thinker, um, but suddenly I saw the impact of everything that everybody did because we were putting these together into a new drug application to go to the FDA. From there, I went to a very small consulting company as a writer because I had this experience as a medical writer. And one day they came to me and they said, Bella, we would like you to write standard operating procedures. And I was like, I don't know anything about standard operating procedures. But, you know, in a small company, you do all kinds of interesting things. So I spent um, quite a few years going from one pharmaceutical company to another, 
basically saying to people, okay, so now what do you do? What do you do next? Um, you know, is there a decision point here? Making process maps and writing those down into procedural documents. So nobody was actually thinking about improving them at the time, but I spent all this time just writing down process, hearing how companies did things. Um, and then a guy was hired by a company who was doing business process re-engineering. So I don't know if you remember mm -hmm. that book. It was a long time mm -hmm. ago. So he came in, and and so um, I got on one of his teams, and we were doing business process re-engineering. I had no idea what I was doing. But based, that seemed to be you go into the companies and you ask the same questions, mm -hmm. but then you ask an additional question is, how could we make this better? <laughs> yeah. so that was it. So that's kind of my my origin story. Um, from there, um, I ended up being hired back by a pharmaceutical company. Um, and one day I was doing this sort of business process re-engineering and my phone rang and there was somebody on the other end who was from our uh, manufacturing organization. And he said, Bella, I want to introduce myself. Have you ever heard of Six Sigma? I said, he said, the company wants everybody to be doing Six Sigma as a methodology. So, you know, we got trained on Six Sigma. And because I was really working in R&D, I found it didn't really work all that well in R&D um, for lots of lots of reasons. And then, um, but we, you know, we kind of plugged along. And then I also learned creative problem solving and spent a lot of time trying to think about how to have a Six Sigma and creative problem solving work together. That's almost what my book is about. And then one day I met somebody who was doing uh, lean in in labs. So basically, you know, typical production, just system lean in laboratories. And that just totally blew my mind. M meaning, again, research laboratories. Yeah, or, the, in research, not yeah, research laboratories, but the kind of research laboratories that were doing multiple assays that were similar to each other. Right, so not necessarily discovery laboratory where you might be doing some, you know, different experiments over the course of several months, but the kind of laboratory where you're going to be testing something over and over and over again. Oh, okay. Because though that kind of lab is very amenable to TPS type mm -hmm. um, improvements. Yeah, because yeah. that starts sounding a little bit more like a medical laboratory that might be in a hospital or a freestanding laboratory where they're doing tests on blood and other patient samples. And some of that tends to be very high volume and pretty repetitive yeah. and automated and production-like. Yeah, and you see these things where somebody's, you know, and I will go into a lab and they go, Bella, this is so cool. We just bought this new robot that can pipette, you know, <laughs> I don't know, some vast number of samples all at once. I say, wow, that's really cool. What happens to the samples when they pipette? They go, oh, they go in the freezer too. We can actually test them. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. There's um, so many habits. Um, there's that habit of telling people there is the habit of batching. Yes. That we see in so many different settings. You're, you're just triggering a different memory of the largest centrifuge I ever saw was in, you know, a hospital laboratory. I, it probably held over a hundred specimens and I was used to seeing um, centrifuges that would hold maybe more like two dozen. And there were mm -hmm. a lot of labs that would get down to using ones that held maybe six, yep. right? So smaller batches, it's like um, having a lot of different air fryers on a table instead of one big oven, if you will, to use a food analogy. And um, 
watching and 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 you know somebody was talking through the process and we're observing specimen goes into the centrifuge and then how long does it sit there until the centrifuge is full right and like well that, i mean samples later yeah yeah now it wouldn't make sense to run two at a time but it was a system design problem like that one large centrifuge could have been replaced with many smaller centrifuges that would have allowed flow but yeah, I think this is where, you know, when you think back to what you were describing with business process reengineering or with lean, I mean, as much as we talk about teams improving their own work, there's something to be said for fresh eyes coming in mm-hmm. and challenging something like they would just take for granted. Like, well, that's the way we've always done it. And you think, oh, red flag. Well, how could we make it better? There's back to that other other questions. So, um, And I think it, that's it. That's a really hard balance. And I've always found that to be a really hard balance. And particularly in that type of situation, you come in, okay, and you just know, right? Your training, your experiences teach you that a big batch is probably going to be less efficient and less effective than a small batch, right? So there's a there's a tug. So part of it would be, well, I, I could just tell them, you know. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the big centrifuge mm-hmm. and put in some small centrifuges. Or we could do all of this work for months and months and months, and eventually they'll figure it out for themselves. And and uh, that's kind of where that management pressure comes in too, right? Because management is saying, okay, this lab is holding up the work that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to make that this lab work better now. So at some point there is, you know, some teaching. And one of the things that we found with labs over the over the um the years and working with them was that um really level flow was incredibly important. Right. right. A workload leveling was incredibly mm-hmm. important because there's this very volatile workload coming in. Um and then it was leading to like a lot, lots and lots of lost samples. So actually teaching people about how to identify the different types of work they had in their process and, uh, you know, helping them to figure out how to create a nice steady cadence mm-hmm. for the things that happen most often. It's hugely beneficial. Yeah. Um, very hard for people to get their minds around because they were so used to living in a panic environment. Right. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so yeah. We, we had some, you know, some folks actually brought some folks in who were very, very good at that. And it was remarkable, the improvements that we could make in the labs. But to go back to the people side, a lot of those improvements, I'm sorry to say, were not sustained because we didn't spend enough time working with the managers about, well, how do you manage this? How do you maintain it? And how do you maintain a continuous improvement environment in this lab so you can get better? And we did yeah. not spend enough time doing that. Yeah. And you know, I think one of my reflections of, um, you know, I've never really worked under the banner of BPR or business process reengineering, but as an industrial engineer, I was kind of put in a similar situation to what you're describing of watching people and documenting what they're doing or, you know, and even timing it, asking them how they do it. And that's not as effective as, um, you know, taking the opportunity to show people how to document their own work, but then also do so in a way, you know, where I, you know, think back early in my career, like, oh my gosh, the engineer with the stopwatch and a clipboard, um, how, how, how scary and threatening that can be because what happens with that information? Oh, management's trying to get rid of people. And, you know, that I think that's yeah. one of the shifts from either like, you know, doing industrial engineering to people 
or bringing in BPR versus engaging people in lean. Like there's gotta be some foundation of trust with the humans, back to name of your company, mm-hmm. Lean for Humans. Um, you know, we, we, we can engage people and, and like you're saying, it, it leads to better outcomes and more sustainable outcomes when it's their improvement. Yes, I mean, because they know it and they love it and they've, they've, they've had that satisfaction of doing yeah. it themselves. It makes such a big difference. So um, going back to uh, when you talk about Six Sigma in R&D labs, I mean, that, yeah. that's something that um, gets said a lot. Like if you even look at companies like 3M and when a company like that struggles and some people have blamed Six Sigma for that, that, oh, Six Sigma interfered with innovation. And my, my point's not to bash Six Sigma, but I'm just you know curious, getting a little bit more detail. Like when you say that didn't work in R&D, was it just because it wasn't a high volume process to do some of the defect per million opportunities kind that's of ex- that's exactly what, yeah. yeah that was exactly it like you okay. know so so i was spent learning the math and you know learning the software and then just you just don't do anything often enough to get the numbers right and then the other big thing problem for us for the same reason was really like getting to a control stage right so you can't control and, and have run charts if, you know, six weeks later, you're going to switch to another project and do things in a different way. It's And I saw, you know, we did go through the whole thing of belt training and everything. And I saw so many green belts and aspiring black belts really frustrated by the fact that they can never get to control because being R&D, we moved on to something else. <laughs> and, yeah. and that was, you know, it was very difficult um, in that environment. Um, but, I, you know, one of the things that that I was really thinking about at the time, because I was learning creative, the creative problem solving methodology at the same time that we were implementing Six Sigma in research and development in this company, was that um, there were, there seemed to be a lot of overlap, you know, so there was, you know, started with trying to understand a problem and then, you know, eventually trying to figure out what to do to solve the problem. But the two methodologies, I couldn't find any way, at least then, where the two methodologies had really been brought together so you could have the benefits of both. And one of the things that was most striking to me was that in my company, we actually, with the I in Demaic, we talked about it as being not just improvement, but innovative improvement. But we never taught any of our belts how do you actually get to something innovative, which is, you know, another set of approaches and tools and ways of thinking so we you know we said innovative improvement but we didn't know how what innovative improvement meant uh, yeah so that was um i think you know i think that was the other thing and then you know as happens with belt programs um you know people got a little bored with it um you know some people some people from Corporate were always coming in saying, well, how much money have you saved? And we weren't as actually as interested in saving money as we were in building capacity to do more R&D. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. so um, we, we were always having an argument um, mm. about that. So, um, yeah. so yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Six Sigma is useless. No. I, it's just. I wouldn't, not, I wouldn't say that either. Not well suited for that environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm no expert on 3M. I'm not an expert. Uh, on Six Sigma, and it might surprise you know listener to to hear 
me defending Six Sigma, but I, it just always feels like that's an excuse. If, uh, you know, if 3M indeed was having innovation problems, was that correlation with Six Sigma? Was that really truly cause and effect? And if Six Sigma was really hurting innovation, there would have been a need to change the Six Sigma approach. Like I, 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 I don't like giving a methodology too much credit or letting it be the fall guy. I mean, I think you know it comes down to the leaders, the people running running the company. Yeah, and and are you asking the questions that allow people to try things out? And I think that was the, you know, that was the rap, right? I don't remember all that much about it, but that was the rap was that you know, three M used to be this place where people actually had time to sit and play with things and noodle on stuff, and and once they got into Six Sigma, the it was not so much the the approach, but the drive for efficiency mm. meant that they had to use their time differently. And that mm-hmm. that's about the corporate ethos of the implementation, not the approach sure. itself. Yeah, I, I don't think there would be anything in the Six Sigma handbook that would have dictated that shift in culture or measures that were changing that measures that were driving uh, a change in behavior. Yeah. It'd be good to have yeah. someone from 3M. Weigh yeah. in on this, I think. Sure, um, somebody who had been there. Um, yeah. So um, I want, wanted to ask you. Know, you mentioned a couple of times um, as a methodology, uh, creative problem solving. That, that, that's not something I'm really familiar with either. Can give us a summary of like what 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 makes that a specific methodology? Creative problem solving um, came out of work that was done in the late '40s and early '50s. Um, by a guy, and I always I have to make sure I get his name right. Name right. I should. I talk about him in my book, and I always get his name slightly wrong. Um, that he was really focused. He was an advertising executive, and he was really concerned with or interested in in making advertising more effective. And advertising in those days was all about. Um, you know, if I'm selling you a new refrigerator, I'm going to show you all the features of my new refrigerator, right? And his question really was, well, how can we have advertising that's more exciting, more interesting, and entices people? Um, So, yeah, so Alex Osborne. um, So Alex Osborne um, was his executive, and he's the one who actually uh, was involved in the creation of what we now think of of as brainstorming. What Osborne really started to investigate was divergent thinking, which is allowing yourself to think of many different ideas and options, right? And what kind of environment was needed for divergent thinking. He also wanted to know what um, kind of people were good at divergent thinking, because if you get it, you know, so so you kind of, you can see the movement there from, you know, here's my refrigerator, I'm going to tell you my refrigerator has three shelves to the kind of advertising we see at the Super Bowl today where, you know, maybe it's gone so, you know, it's so divergent that sometimes you don't know what the ad's about, right? But there was a there was a pathway there. So he was very interested in divergent thinking. And he partnered with a psychologist um, named Sid Perns, and they developed a methodology to help particularly people in this advertising agency, but other people get more and more comfortable and learn how to think divergently and come up with ideas. 
Um, and I guess at some point they realized, hey, it doesn't do you any good to come up with ideas if you don't actually implement them. Mm. So then they also started to <laughs> right. work on convergent thinking. Convergent thinking is where you select ideas, you strengthen them, um, and you carry them forward. And so creative problem solving is a series of learning cycles. I had a conversation with a CPS person the other day, and they said, it's not learning cycles, it's a process. I said, oh, I know, it is a, they are learning cycles. It's a series of learning cycles that always go from divergent thinking to convergent thinking, right? So you think of a lot of ideas, and then you pick something to move forward with. And then you find out there are problems with ideas, with that idea, and so you make it stronger by thinking divergently about, about what needs to happen to make it stronger, and then you pick two or three solutions to move forward with and then finally you're going to implement it right so there's going to be some you know laying the ground work to do that lots of options and then you're going to decide how you're going to move forward and in all of that you're collecting what they call data which is information about the world as you go through these cycles um that's why I think they're learning cycles. Even though yeah. if there's any CPS people listening, they're probably going to say, Bella, no, it's a process. Now, I strongly yeah. believe they're learning cycles. So you can use these learning cycles either in the CPS methodology, which is a series of steps that have this divergent and convergent thinking, or why not use it with PDCA, right? Why not use it in your A3? Why not use it in Demaic? So when you're going to innovative improvement, that I step, what's that thing you're going to come up with? Well, you know, you could actually apply some CPS thinking, some divergent thinking and convergent thinking um, to that step. Um, and so in the end, you know, after I, like, I've been done all this thinking and working on it and teaching it to people and writing a book about it, you know, somebody said to me, well, haven't you just reinvented design thinking? I said, well, maybe I have. I don't know. I don't know. But that's, it's the, um, it's, it just seems to me that, you know, there are all these methodologies that people use. And everybody holds on very firmly. This is my methodology. This is how I do it. I do Toyota Cutter, or, you know, we're all about PDCA over here. Or, no, it's PDSA. Or, you know, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. you see, you know, all of the arguments, right? Mm -hmm. um, but um, very few of them, I think, really take advantage of do we understand how to come up with new ideas uh, to broaden our thinking so that we can see what we need to see, which is, you know, Coming up with multiple potential root causes is a divergent activity. Um, and then, because most of us are much more com comfortable with convergent thinking, which is why Alex Oswald, in the beginning, really focused on divergent thinking, because he saw everybody around him was all about convergent thinking and making choices. So, yeah. And this is Alex, who's uh, pretty well known in like lean startup entrepreneurship circles. Am I thinking of the right person? Well, this is, um, I don't, no, he, there was an advertising executive in the 19, uh, 1930s, late oh. uh, 1940s, then 50s, yes. Yeah, so. Oh, okay. So it's a similar name, I think, or close enough, yeah. Alex Osterwalder. Um, okay. Yeah, my uh, yeah, my, yeah, my, yeah. My, my, uh, yeah my I know what you mean. Okay. And that's why I have a hard time remembering his name because I mix it <laughs> up with Alex Osterwalder, yeah. who it does great. I love his stuff, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a difference in approach, yeah, yeah, creative problem solving without implementation could maybe be described as 
creative solution generation. Well, then solution, like that comes back to your sticker. Don't be so sure. Like when right. people say, this is a lesson I've been fortunate to learn, I'll credit uh, Pascal Dennis for this, the idea of um, saying like, oh, we, we found the root cause. Oh, well, how do you know that's the root cause? Well, we talked about it in a room and we're all really sure that that's the root cause. That's where that sticker would be helpful, right? Don't be so sure. Don't At be some so point, sure. there needs to be action to help test or disprove. It's You have a hypothesis of a root cause, just as you might have a, a hypothesis that this solution is going to be helpful. Hence, don't be so sure. <laughs> Go like, test it. I need experiment. to get one of those. Yeah, do the experiment. Yeah, do the, do the experiment. Yeah. So, yeah, but, and so in creative problem solving, the first step is clarify the problem, which mm -hmm. is what we would call root cause analysis. Right. Now, now the what first you step in an A3, maybe. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's get as much information as you can about the problem. You know, what is all the, th the stuff that we know? And then, you know, I would get into arguments with the CPS people because what I call data and Mark, what you would call data and what they call data there wasn't always an overlap, um, you know. So then I would say, you just because somebody said something doesn't mean it's true, right? Don't you put that on? How a do you know when, this? We're yeah. not going to solve. The, we're not going to solve the problem based on that because you, right, Mark? You're not going to. You don't really know it. You got to go and got to go and see what's really going on. Yeah, but um, yeah, that was. Uh, so I spent a lot of time when I'm talking with my CPS friends. They would say, "Well, you know, we." We know you're into that Six Sigma lean quality management stuff, but, you know, we'll talk to you anyway. And then there would be, you know, all the all my Six Sigma lean friends, and they'd say, you know, oh, there you're going off on the creativity stuff again. And to me, it just seems so important that they work together. Yeah. So then in, in the career journey, when did your work and, and what you were exposed to and taught become lean? You know, you're talking about going through Six Sigma and then feel like we need to come back to that story. Of yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So what happened was um, my company put on a conference for all of us people who were doing what we were then calling process excellence. And so um, we were called to company headquarters and we had this amazing conference and um, Jerry Velasco was there. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. Jerry. I do. Uh, so Jerry was there and he was talking about some uh, some lab projects, some lab work they had been doing out of um, orthoclinical at that time. Orthoclinical um, diagnostics. I worked right, there. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And um, I was just, after we'd just been struggling with all this black belt, green belt stuff and the projects that, you know, Really, we couldn't get them to finish because we couldn't get a control. And Jerry was there talking about what they were doing in labs and with their clients. And I was just like, all right, this is the stuff we have to do. So mm -hmm. we actually brought Jerry and his team in and they did our first lean lab project. Oh, small world. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we did that project and it was, you know, we got incredible results out of it. But as I said, you know, it wasn't sustainable because we didn't work enough on the people side of it. And you know, that was my learning afterwards. We should, so we should have worked on the people side much harder. Um, but we got these great results. And one of the things that really helped that was really important about that was that we had a very important filing that was going to go into the FDA. And this one particular lab looked like they were going to hold that filing up. And a lot of people were not happy. And so by helping this lab, we got this drug to the, uh, you know, to the market when it was supposed to be. And it was, you know, it was very, very cool. I was very excited. 
So then we did a few more projects like that. And we went to a conference uh, with um, on lean, uh, lean pharmaceutical, lean pharmaceutical R and D. So we were there, and the other companies, the other big pharma companies, were there, and everybody presented their project, and we all presented the same project, which was basically we went into some part of R and D that was looked like operations where you could apply TPS and you got great results. I'm sitting there thinking about this. I'm thinking, you know, there's something wrong here. It's just not. It's just not right. And Terry Barnhart um, was the was chairing that conference. At the end of the conference, he had sort of a, a sit around and talk about what you think about the conference session. And I said, you know, I don't know that we're really helping pharmaceutical R and D. Said we are, you know, we're dealing with this massively long drug development process. You know, it's, it can be like. Everyone says eight, you know, six, eight, ten years, but it, honestly, Mark, it can be up to 17, 18 years to go from discovery lab to really, you know, being impatient. I said, and I don't know that fixing these operational pieces is going to really help us. So we need to have something that fixes the innovation side of it, how we do the innovation. And Everybody kind of looked at me like I was really nuts because they were happy with all of the projects and everything that they had been doing. And I went back um, to work after that conference. And um, I, this was, I opened up Google and I typed in um, lean product development. And um, that was when I really discovered the whole sort of field of lean product development. And then, you know, if you think that the Jerry, the, you know, those first lab projects blew me away, what I started to read about lean product development, you know, and how Toyota's product development really is what drives the value of Toyota. Mm -hmm. the, you know, manufacturing is fantastic, but the value comes from the, from the product development. I was completely stunned. So then I had a really big sales job to do, right? So uh, I ended up bringing Michael Kennedy in to sit with a bunch of, of um, biology people. He's an engineer. And uh, this was a bunch of, you know, PhDs, MDs. And we, we sat in a room for, I think, about two days and tried to understand each other. And at the end, at the end, it was, they understood well enough to allow us to start to try some experiments. Mm -hmm. um, so... That was yeah. kind of kind of where we got started. Now I gotta say, now that I'm no longer with the company, and we, you know, as these things go, you've seen, you know, we sort of implementation, and then, you know, organizational change, and then another implementation org change. I don't know how much of what we worked on still exists um, mm, sure. in, in that particular company. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're describing there, what you were asking questions about, doesn't sound crazy. It sounds insightful. Like, are we solving? the right problem? Are we solving the biggest problem that really matters to the core of the business, right? So in healthcare delivery, um, there are all sorts of lean projects that work on one part of a department like you're describing, like, oh, well, here's an application. This seems like operations and we're going to apply TPS to it. But then we step back and say, well, um, you know, how many people are, how many patients are being harmed? How many patients are dying? due to preventable medical errors, maybe we should be applying this problem solving to things like medication errors and 
surgical errors. And I, I think at some point we've got to step back and ask, like, are we really working on, are we applying people's time and skills and brain power and creativity to the right problems? And those might be harder to solve, but they're worth, they're worth tackling. Yeah, I, I mean, what you're saying about healthcare is really interesting because what I'm seeing in healthcare now is this, this massive rejection of of a lot of what has been done, right? And, and you were talking about before about the the old industrial engineer standing there with the stopwatch. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of people seem to think that lean is. You know, lean is about a guy standing there with a stopwatch. It's about yeah. telling people they've only got 15 minutes that that, that to do mm-hmm. something they think take that takes right. half an hour right and it's about taking away their um their flexibility when it comes right. to crisis level supplies um and you've talked about that a lot but what's you know what's the real problem in healthcare that you know the real problem in healthcare is massive it's about disconnection and how people get paid and well and, we we could we could step back and people yeah. with more of a public health orientation would say stop just trying to make the hospital less error prone let's keep people healthy so that they exactly. don't need to come so like oh okay you're right yeah. i mean we could step back and look at the uh, yeah. I look at the whole situation uh, from from many different levels, but uh, important stuff. But so you know the, the the people, and when you talk about engaging the people, supporting people, working with people, um, that clearly has inspired you. Like, tell what was the 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 moment where you, you know you, you came up with the name of your company, Lean for Humans, and what that means to you. I don't know if I can remember exactly the moment that I came up with it, but you know, I, I need I needed to form a company because I had a client, so I needed a company yeah. so I could get paid. I mean, this is what happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I have to call this company something. And because I am so passionate about about it being really for the benefit of people, um, you know, I think that just popped into my head, and then I looked to see whether. It, there were any other companies called Lean for Humans, and they weren't. So I was mm-hmm. able to get the name. Um, yeah, and I and so I did want to distinguish myself and what I do from the very valuable people who will come in and will teach you how to do five S. Um, sure. And you know, well, that's all. That's really, really good stuff. But I really want to get into in the work that I do. How do we treat each other? Mm-hmm. How do we? listen to each other and how do we get better in that and i i gotta tell you i'm not any better than any other human being at doing any of those things right i'm, not, yeah. I'm still practicing i'm, I'm still practicing and i'm still i'm still learning um, yes I, that's the you know sort of people i say well who's your ideal client my ideal client is someone who already realizes that the way they're behaving in their organization as a manager or a leader isn't going to cut it going forward and I think this, you know, so-called great resignation is really should be saying to company leadership, you know, you've got something really going on here that is not the right thing, right? The way that you've done this in the past isn't going to work going forward. So I'm going to plug um, another podcast um, series of mine. Jamie Flinchbaugh and I just had a long conversation over uh, a pour of whiskey in episode 32 of our Lean Whiskey podcast talking about the great resignation and things he's written about in the subject and talking about this idea of don't blame the people who are resigning. Yeah. (laughs) You need to look at your own culture and practices and things that would um, drive people to even think about leaving. Exactly. 
exactly. And it's hard, right? Um, because holding that mirror up to ourselves is is very difficult. Um, and yeah, so that's the that's the downside of doing that. It's it's it's, it's probably going to hurt a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you also. I like asking about names and in your podcast, the edges of lean. Yeah. Like, how do you define the edges of lean for people who haven't listened to the episodes? Where, where do you find people at the edges of lean? Well, you know, it's funny having named the podcast that we almost always come back to the same the same thing, which is people, right? We, we always co- almost always come back to that. So I'm interested on the podcast. I'm interested in two things. One is people who are doing lean in places, or th- something that they call lean in places that... Um, are not typical manufacturing operations environments. And we know there's lots of, lots of people who are doing that, but many of them feel as if they're, they're a little bit, you know, they're stepchildren a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I st- yeah. it, it mystifies me. I still see people writing blog posts like, do you know you can use lean in the office? It's like, well, <laughs> sure. yes. You know, people have been doing it for 15 years, but we don't talk to each other about it, right? So yeah. So you think you you think it's, it's something really, um, really avant-garde and out there but the other thing i'm interested in is all these things that are kind of like cps that probably should be in somebody who's practicing lean's toolkit so um you know things like collaboration skills well so we know in order to to really achieve a change among a group of people you're going to have to have some great collaboration well how do you actually get that and the person who can tell us about that may or may not be someone that we think of as being a lean practitioner so you know i like to bring in people who don't think of themselves as being part of our world and have a conversation with them and then there are people who are kind of like in this other place um, who are practicing probably things that we would think of as being very lean, but they've never heard of lean or they don't call it lean because the principles are so universal. And so we can learn something from them as well. You know, so people yes. in the military who, you know, who learn, who learned the OODA, OODA loop, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Ari, it was a observed John, Orient. Yeah. John Boyd was the. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. The John Boyd stuff. Um, yeah. That is, you know, that's, there's some lean in there. Okay, yeah. so how are they looking at it and how are they using it and what can we learn from them? So the edges are pretty broad, but we almost always come back to talking about people. Yeah. So we you say, you know, with your company, Lean for Humans, putting people at the center, it's funny that exploring the edges helps us rediscover the core. How is that? Yeah, I love it. I love it. And that's exactly what happens in a lot of the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I, um, so I love the idea. And I mean, there are times where I think I dabble in the edges of lean or like, I guess like episode 437, most recently, Peter Docker, who is from uh, the Royal Air Force talking about leadership and moving away from command and control and to, you know, training people and then empowering them and trusting them. Like, yeah, that, that I, I, I had him on the podcast because it's, I think, as you were saying, it's very reminiscent of lean. It's inspiring mm-hmm. to those of us who are working uh, through and for people for their benefit um, to, to bring in ideas. We could say that's lean adjacent, but there's something yeah. there's something extra that comes into the fold. Yeah. You know, some of these things are going to help you with your practice of lean. And even if they don't, I'm a big believer in feeding your brain with ideas that you think 
are not important now because they may be important later. Yeah. That could be, again, like singing lessons or relearning mm -hmm. how to sing. What benefit, what insights come to you from learning and practicing something new? I think there's great benefit to being in a position where you're learning or relearning. I think it's good for your brain, but it's also good a good reminder when you're in the position of being a coach or a trainer, what it, yeah. like, what it feels like to be the student. So my granddaughter actually has a visual board for her singing lessons. What is what is on that? Um, well, it's a little crazy right now um, because it's been with various things going on. But she oh, she has a a goal that she wants to achieve, um, and she I'm really kind of letting her design it herself. So she is breaking up her work into small pieces, and she gives us she gets to check off her work when it's done. It's mostly a checklist right now, and. Um, was the thing that she's really learning how to do is to observe herself, which is something I think that many of us don't know. So the question that I ask and her voice teacher asked is, how did that feel? And start to reflect on what you just did. How did that feel? What do you think happened? What did you like about it? Um, so something is done when she likes what she's done, whether or not we think it's good. But again, there's a parallel to coaching adult humans in the mm -hmm. workplace. Exactly. Yeah. Younger grandchild humans. So yes. Um, so much. Um, yeah, so many uh, thought-provoking ideas um, out of the conversation today, Bella. So um, again, I encourage people check out um, the podcast, "The Edges of Lean." You can most likely find it wherever, whatever app you're using to listen. To my podcast, just go search The Edges of Lean. Um, Bella and I are both uh, part of a, a group, a uh, mastermind group, we, I don't know, a networking group called The Lean Communicators. So we encourage people to go to leancommunicators.com and you can discover um, the other podcasts of the other people we're collaborating with. So I'm thankful you've been part of that group for a little bit over a year since we started that, Bella. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate it. I've learned so much in that group. It's been a huge help to me in moving the podcast forward. And I, again, I want to give a shout out to the leancommunicators.com website because it's just, it updates constantly as, as people put out new episodes, you're going to see the latest episodes and, um, you know, chances are what you're looking for is there already or will be soon. Yeah. So, well, and, and that group, it's been great because everybody's learning, everybody's teaching and sharing something and, that's that's what that kind of group is supposed to be about. So that's been yeah. really it's good. All about the so, people. Yeah, there we go. The people who make the podcasts. And I, yes. I think the people who come on to be a guest, uh, like today, Bella Engelbach. Again, her website is leanforhumans.com. And you can learn more about uh, her book and her work and the podcast and everything else that's there. So, Bella, thank you. Really, really appreciate having you here as a guest today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.